Welcome to the Dr. Lori Morris podcast, where she interviews experts in health and science, sharing their expertise so you can live your healthiest life. This episode of the podcast is proudly sponsored by Fit Vegan Coaching, the world's leading whole food plant-based body recomposition program for Gen X and baby boomers. Founded by Maxime, whose personal journey began after losing his ex-fiance to breast cancer, Fit Vegan Coaching is on a mission to disease-proof the world through the transformative power of plant-based eating and fitness. This program is the Rolls Royce of plant-based coaching, offering all-inclusive services, personalized plans, world-class accountability, lifelong support, and more. Say goodbye to the yo-yo dieting and embrace a lasting transformation that will rev up your metabolism even post-transformation. Ready to take charge of your health and vitality? Head over to fitvegan.ca, that's fitvegan.ca, and mention Dr. Lori for exclusive bonus savings when you sign up. Don't miss this opportunity to join the movement towards a healthier, fitter, and more vibrant you. This episode of the podcast is proudly sponsored by The Healing Kitchen, your path to vibrant health. Immerse yourself in the transformative program, guided by the combined expertise of myself, Dr. Lori Marbus, and Chef Brittany Giroudi, who has lost 70 pounds on a whole food plant-based diet. Here's what's in store for you. Virtual weekly sessions. Engage in an immersive 60-minute virtual session every single week, where you'll delve into the world of wholesome plant-based goodness right from your own kitchen. Cooking with Brittany the first half hour. Unleash your inner chef as you're captivated by Chef Brittany Giroudi's culinary mastery that will delight your taste buds and nourish your body. Medical Q&A with Dr. Lori the last half hour. Prioritize your well-being during the second half hour. I will personally address your medical inquiries, providing evidence-based insights and personalized advice, empowering you to make informed choices for your health. So join us on the Healing Kitchen to help you step into a healthier and most vibrant future. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Dr. Lori Marvis, and today I'm very excited to welcome a very dear friend, Catherine Van Tassel, who is not only a fantastic PA, but she's also a licensed clinical social worker. She helps people change their behavior and help with their mental health. She can go into all the details. There's many very amazing facets to Catherine, including she's an ultra runner, energy beyond energy and just a delight to be around. So welcome to the podcast, Catherine. I can't wait to dig into food addiction with you. Thanks so much for having me. I think that this is a really powerful topic because it impacts so many of us. Um, and there are so many reasons why. So this will be fun to do a bit of a deep dive and hopefully everybody will get something that they can take away. Absolutely. So well, let's just get started with understanding what is food addiction? Is it an actual diagnosis? What is the biological mechanisms? Like, where do we even begin to understand the framework of food addiction? Yeah. Well, I think part of this is kind of exciting because it is a newer area. And when I say that, I think it's being talked about more and more than it ever has. Um, right now, it's not in the DSM. Um, the American Psychiatric Association doesn't recognize food addiction as a, an official diagnosis. However, um, this seems to be this new area where more and more science has been emerging. Everything from um, studies um, modulating the um, 
the nucleus accumbens in our brain um, and how that impacts our motivation and reward system, um, rat studies that are being done. Um, but I think we're still trying to get our hands around diagnostic criteria, um, what this means prognostically and treatment. Um, so we have things right now that we'll talk about, like um, the, what, uh, the Yale Food Assessment Score um, and what we're seeing and how there's an overlap in mood disorders, addiction disorders um, that is similar to food addiction. Um, but if we look at it right now, um, one of the other things that I wanted to say about this is it's not, like I said, it's not new. This was first recognized around the 1950s um, that there was something to being driven to overeat highly palatable foods. So the term food addiction was first introduced in the scientific literature in 1956, and that was done by Theron Roundolph. Um, and now we're just continuing to get our hands on this and what this looks like and what treatment will look like for people. Yeah. So a lot of times people will just say, oh, I'm addicted to this or I'm addicted to that. And really don't understand that the consequences that actually there might be some actual truth. They might be saying it in just jest, right? Like for me, like it's the, you know, the little Girl Scout Thin Mint cookies. Yeah. If you can eat an entire sleeve and then the entire box in one sitting, might have an issue. So that is my jest, but there's definitely some truth to it. It's like chocolate, crunchy. Mm. So what is it? how do we define it? Like, where do we actually say, okay, this is the definition of someone who might just like to eat excessive Doritos in one sitting versus like, okay, now we actually have a food addiction issues. Like what is the actual definition? What do you say? Yeah, I think that's a really good point because there we have process addictions. So think gambling, um, phone addictions now. Um, so think about this. If you were to say, um, or somebody was to tell you, uh, I go to bed with a bottle of wine on my dresser. Uh, it's the last thing I drink before I go to bed. When I wake up, it's the first thing I drink. And then throughout the day, I check it about every three minutes and have a little drink. You would probably say that that's an addiction, right? Um, but that's how we use our cell phones. We have our cell phones on our nightstand. We check them right before we go to bed. Um, they are the first thing we use in the morning. And then we check our cell phones consistently throughout the day. And we get a little bit of dopamine from this. Um, but we don't tell people, oh, you have an addiction to your cell phone. I mean, we're starting to say that more and more, but I mean, that's pretty common, right? Um, and this is in the food world too. Okay, so we have to eat food to sustain our life. That's just the way it is. Um, and we live in a world with highly processed food that's around a corner. And so the way that we eat for the most part, most of us, we have the standard American diet, which is incredibly unhealthy. Um, but you don't go around telling people, oh, you're addicted to that, you're addicted to that. And like you said, sometimes I overeat a bag of chips, but does that mean you have food addiction? No, absolutely not. But these blurred lines, and again, this is new you know, because we never lived in an era that's been every corner. We eat out of celebration, out of sadness. We literally eat from birth to death. So think when somebody has a baby, what do you do? Bring all these casseroles and food. When somebody dies, what do we do? We have funeral potatoes. Um, so I think that becomes hard when you're looking at how do we identify that? 
also when you're looking in the literature, so to get to your question, when you look in the literature, um, we know that people with obesity um, can have food addiction. It does not mean that everybody with obesity has food addiction and same thing. Um, people that are within a healthy um, uh, body weight could also have a food addiction. So this makes it even more difficult. So, okay, well, what would that, what does this really look like and what clinical skills do we have? So maybe this would be a good time to go through the Yale food um, score, but I wanted to say, and this is where we see crossover and other mood, behavioral, addictive disorders that are in the DSM. Um, we're taking in more of a substance than we desire or wish to, um, and we're having negative outcomes we have tried to cut down unsuccessfully. Um, we have preoccupation with this. And every disorder essentially in the DSM, there's always this like one line, and um, for the most part, it's creating um, stress in your life or distress. And so I think that that is one of the ways that we could look at this either as clinicians or those that are just individuals thinking, um, am I impacted by this? And it's difficult to see in our current food culture. Um, but is this causing me to stress? Am I having negative health outcomes for this? So I've gone to my doctor. Um, my doctor said, you have hypertension um, and diabetes, things that we see in metabolic syndrome. Um, we need uh, to do these interventions. And is the way that you're eating negatively impacting that? Also, we can see people um, eating in, um, in private because there's shame and guilt. Is there a shame and guilt process in this as well? So that would be um, something that I, if somebody's considering this and looking at the definition, what does that look like? Um, having cultural considerations and how you're feeling and then the distress that it's coming into your life. The other thing that I wanted to say that I think is, you know, just when we think of culture, so how many times do people come home at the end of the day and they're like, whoa, that was a rough day. I really would like to have my favorite food as comfort. Um, and we can eat our favorite comfort foods, um, even if we're full, right? Um, but how many times have you come home at the end of the day and you're like, oh my gosh, I have a stock of broccoli. I have been thinking about that broccoli all day long. I can't wait to sit on my couch and I'm just going to munch away on my broccoli and watch the crown. That doesn't happen, right? <laughs> because our brain is being hijacked by these highly palatable foods. So we eat in times we're not even hungry, but out of comfort, um, despite negative outcomes, which usually end up being health outcomes, right? So I guess this gets to the point well, everyone's always looking for, you know, where can I point the blame? Where do I say this is because of you and not me? Or is it because of me and not you? Like, where does the blame lie if there is even a place to lay blame? And I guess, how do we, well, this kind of gets to our, maybe our third podcast. We have a series of podcasts we're going to be talking about this is like, how do we deal with that? So maybe you can talk to us and speak to us a little bit more in depth about our environment and why we make these decisions, even though we know in our head that we shouldn't, we understand we need to eat food to survive, obviously, but what, what is it that we can't make the right decision? Like what's going on biologically in our heads and our minds and our hearts to just say, yeah, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. 
that we make we make choices despite our desire to do something else. Yeah. Um, well, let's think about this in two different ways. So, I mean, be, being a behavioral health clinician, I love how does our mind work? And I think once you understand that, it makes things so much easier to understand. And we have biological, chemical, mechanical reasons that we eat or that we don't eat. So maybe we could start there and and make this um, not too much of a like neurobiology lesson and make put anybody to sleep, um, but more of like, oh, that makes so much sense why I'm doing these some of these behaviors. And then also, how does stress? We live in a very stressful world. We're over, um, we're overstressed. We're underslept. We're overnourished. We're overscheduled. And how does that impact this? Because this is why this impacts so many people. Because if it doesn't fall into this one bucket, it's going to fall into the other. Um, so let's just first start with our brain. Our brain is amazing, <laughs> and biologically, we were set up to survive, right? So. If you go back in time to hunter-gatherers, you know, Larry, what were the things that you had to do to stay alive? If you were a hunter-gatherer, what were your priorities? What were you going to do? Right. So we're looking for food. So mm-hmm. gathering components, looking for tubers, plants that were edible. And if you're hunting, you're probably eating more rodents than the big kill, but you're still looking and you're spending all of your energy on looking for foods that will sustain you to get you to the point where you can procreate and live out your short lifespan and die. <laughs> so basically we need to pass on our genes. So it's survival passing on our genes. Um, so yeah, there's that. So that's what we're focused in on because we didn't have all the things and luxuries that we have now. Exactly. Yeah. So I need to mate. I need to find food. I need to have shelter. That is my only thing. So if we think of just food, I don't have to have food to do any of those. Like I can't do any of them. Um, Our brains were set up to, one, motivate us to do that, dopamine, Um, two, feel very good when we do that, dopamine, and three, remember it and go back to and do it again. Like, you have to do this again. And, you know, when we were hunter-gatherers, there wasn't Uber Eats, there weren't Postmates, there, you know, you had to put in some energy, just we didn't have food everywhere. And if you ever grew up in a household with a lot of kids, um, when the food got put out, everybody was like in survival mode, eat as fast as you can because it might go away. And that's what we were supposed to do when we were hunter-gatherers too. If we found food, eat as much of it as you can, eat it as fast as you can, because you were vulnerable, right, to other when you were out there. So I found it good. I'm going to eat it. I'm going to eat as much as I can because I don't know when I'm going to get it again and I've got to get it quick because... I'd be busy saving my life in another way. So in our brains, um, to be able to do this, we have this reward system. Um, and the reward system, there are pathways in our brain. And so to make this um, easier to understand, and again, not put anybody asleep, I think most, most of us recognize the word dopamine. Dopamine is created in a structure called the VTA. Um, and this is a release when we have rewarding stimulus. So I ate something, it was really good, remember. And the thing that um, is good to understand about dopamine is that um, it's not just when you eat the food, this um, is motivating. So when we think about it or we see a commercial or we pass our favorite um, donut place or you go out to eat 
and you see all the like sweet treats that you can order after, you release dopamine um, as well in this reward system. Because again, it's your body trying to keep you alive. Just like when we saw the blueberry bush, ooh, you know that's good. When you see the donut, our brain doesn't know the difference. It just knows that that's food, that's calories. We remember it was good and made it feel good and to do it again and again and again. And this tends to get somewhat hijacked with our current food system. So that's the reward system, right? So we have the VTA, we have the nucleus accumbens, we have dopamine being released in these um, systems. It also, um, in the mesocortical um, pathway, it will go to our frontal lobe. Our frontal lobe makes all of our executive decisions. Um, and I always think of the frontal lobe essentially as like the CEO of our brain in a well-organized organization <laughs> um, that is uh, clicking along pretty good. We make good decisions. <clears throat> so we have our brain that's working in terms of what we're talking about and what motivating why we eat for survival. Then you have um, your personal system. So that's your family system, your work system, um, your own little um, cultural uh, ecosystem, if you will. Okay, what do people in your house eat? Are you one person that's trying to make change, but everyone in your household um, is eating something different? Well, remember what happens in your brain now that you understand the reward system. If you see everyone else eating something, you're biologically driven to that, right? So, Laurie, for you, how many patients have you seen that try and make a change, but nobody else in the family makes a change and they're still in this food environment that makes it so difficult to make that change? Yeah, no, that's a very common occurrence. So you'll have someone who let's say the wife or the mother of the home is working to make the change. So that's the majority of my patients, someone 35 to 75, they're dealing with chronic disease, they're obese, fatigued, high blood pressure, heart disease. They maybe just diagnosed with diabetes and they're really understanding that they need to make a change. And they come to me, it's like, okay, what do I need to do? I tell them what they need to do. But some of the first things I ask or discuss with them is who do you live with? <laughs> <laughs> who's making the food choices and who's cooking at home? Is anyone going to give you a hard time? And then I did, we just have a conversation about that very specific item. And if someone is all on board, if their spouse is ready to go with them, fantastic. Because now we have not only the individual person, but they have an, their partner. It's an accountability issue. They can clean out the home. Because I always tell people, make your home your safe space. Because those environmental cues are so strong that we just we get stressed. It's like, we don't even think about it, right? These things are habits now. Like I eat, I go do this or whatever. I get bored. Like, for example, I work at home. My husband works upstairs. He'll come downstairs for like the fifth time before noon. I'm like, what are you doing? Are you even hungry? Um, and I'll catch myself too, like going to the cabinet, going, just looking at things. You're just sitting there not even thinking. It's like, what am I doing here? Am I even hungry? I just ate. So it's really interesting. Just those environmental cues, like you're describing. <clears throat> yeah, it happens a lot. So if you have that friction, it makes it much harder for patients to continue and make a better improvements in their life. If they can't even get their basic environment at home in a safe place. And then maybe there's some, and maybe you can speak to this too, because I think there's certainly 
maybe willingly or unwillingly partners who try to sabotage someone who's trying to make, you know, improvements in their life. I don't know if they feel threatened or concerned or, or what exactly, but I'd love to hear your play on that. But that's, that's, a, those are common discussions that I have with patients. Yeah. This brings up, I mean, this plays into all, so just, I mean, we're just getting started and why there's so many reasons why. And so, I mean, we look at the biological function. Now we're like in family system in your environment function. And then, you know, stress, like let's chat about that when you're saying my husband's coming down, he's coming down, he's coming down out of stress or boredom. So we see that in like habits, right? And this is where it gets so interconnected. What I see in terms of behavioral, um, the behavioral aspect of it and why I try and focus on that. Um, and I think that would be really nice when we get into, okay, how can we change this is because, okay, biologically you're set up to do this. So you're doing it, you're doing it, you get that um, part of it. And then it becomes this habit where we, you know, lay down these paths. Our, our brains are very plastic, this neuroplasticity idea. And so the more we do it, the more that becomes a habit and it's this behavior and then it's rewarded by this system and both systems. So if you look at your brain, you know, in this frontal lobe part, make the CEO makes all the good decisions. And then in the middle of your brain, you have um, the amygdala. So um, she can be nicknamed Amy. She's essentially the guard at the guard gate, watching out to see, oh, should I be worried about this? Is this person too close to me? Is that car about to hit me? I just got 15 emails in 10 minutes and five of them are from my boss. And then I'm also having Slack and, you know, that upsets Amy. And there are so many other things in this world that we didn't have historically, even in the past 10 years. I mean, when we think about how hyper-connected we are and how we're more, um, I mean, we are sleeping about two hours less a night um, than we did even a decade ago. Um, we know our food system continues to evolve and all of these play into it. So Amy's kind of under siege by the stressful environment that we have. And in the back of our brain is our hippocampus. And I always think of the hippocampus is like a little hippo with like glasses on. He's like a librarian. This is how I remember all these structures. So we have CEO, guard, and then our hippo librarian in the back. Well, the hippo is really important because they're, um, this is where we store memories. This is where um, we have we can recall well. So we learn something, we read something, we can store it. Um, and all this plays into our concentration. But when we upset Amy with this world that we were talking about, underslept, overnourished, overscheduled, not enough time for self-care, not enough time for movement, we don't have good stress management techniques. If Amy gets upset, the whole system goes offline. So we make bad choices like eating donuts when we're stressed and eating five of them. <laughs> um, where we make other bad choices, or we have difficulty concentrating, staying on task. So we see how this stress um, can impact us in whatever that in whatever that looks like in our life. It's different for everybody. Um, and again, when we're seeing this crossover in terms of food addiction with other addictive processes, so think substance use, there's this acronym that we use called HALT. So if you have craving for something, so we have dopamine released in our brain because we pass something that um, activates it or we become stressed and then that's our coping mechanism. Think, am I hungry? Am I angry? Am I lonely? Um, am I bored, lonely, bored, or tired? 
So this makes sense when your husband's coming down, coming up, coming down. He's probably not hungry, but he's probably bored. And oh, guess what? I know something that can give me some pleasure. And I've probably done this enough that my brain has remembered that. And then it cues this and we just get into these loops. Um, And then, so when we're, you know, we're talking about, well, gosh, it's, we're really kind of set up to fail. And then we haven't even looked at what about people who live in food deserts Um, and their options to get food come from the local um, fast food, like market, you know, quickie market. The only thing that's in is highly palatable foods and they don't have access to fresh foods. Um, What about the single mom that's working two jobs, maybe three jobs, trying to find, feed her kids, has a fixed income um, and has never been given education on what is good food to feed your kids. Um, I think the history of Lunchables is such a good example here. Oh my goodness, yes. (laughs) Yeah. Um, you know, if nobody has ever heard this, the short story of that is, um, I think it's Oscar Mayer was trying to figure out a way to sell bologna because, um, bologna had gone out of favor. Um, people were like, oh, maybe this isn't so good to me, <laughs> bologna. So like, oh, what are we going to do? We need to sell this and, you know, repackaged it in a different way and put things that were on the food pyramid, right? like grains and a cracker, which that's not really considered a whole grain, but still um, cheese that's in the food pyramid, but it's very processed cheese. So it can be shelf stable um, and then repackaged bologna. Oh, and then fast forward, let's add a Capri Sun and a snack, a snack size Snickers to that. But you have a mom who doesn't have enough time or doesn't know. And this looks like, oh, this is kind of the food pyramid, meat, cheese, grain, and they get a little snack, some fruit juice. You can see how this goes away with the best intentions. Yeah. Um, and you know, the other thing, how far we've come from this, I think is really interesting too. So I was at dinner last night um, and they, they were, it was a work dinner for my husband's company. And um, it was, I almost felt like I was a zoo animal because um (laughs) okay I literally blew everyone's mind like because I wasn't eating meat I wasn't drinking I wasn't eating uh, these very like rich foods and I explained nicely oh you know I'm just on a whole food plant-based diet this is what I tell my patients to do like just tell them you do it for your health that is why I do it I also do it for other reasons too but that nobody needs to know my moral reasons of why I eat this way. When I tell you that the majority of the conversation then was like, wait, why, what do you, what do you eat? (laughs) (laughs) We've all been in those situations on a recurring basis. Yes. Yeah. And if you think about it, you know, what I'm eating are the foods that we were supposed to eat, just whole natural foods. That's it. Um, but that is no longer the norm, right? People look at you weird when, for example, I'll have patients that are eating very healthy, healthy weight on no medications and they're in their mid to later years. And they're like, people ask me like, you're not on medications. That's so odd. I'm like, (laughs) what is odd is that we've accepted the fact that chronic disease is now the normal and someone who's healthy living a life that we should be living is abnormal. 
it's yeah. mind blowing. Yeah. And maybe you could talk about um, uh, that food is now our number one cause of preventable death, right? That's past oh, smoking. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, if you look at all the chronic diseases, I think there's like seven or eight of them that are all related to food in the food system that we've created that has now spread its tentacles around the world. So where you're seeing, you know, the blue zones where you'd see centurions, let's say in Okinawa, Japan, or some other places like in Costa Rica, our food has penetrated the standard American diet, the sad diet into these environments, which had previously fostered some of the longest living humans on the planet. And now they're seeing a rise of chronic disease and the incredible sustainable system that they've had for so many, many, many years, I'm sure centuries is vanishing literally within a generation. And it's so sad to see that happening, but What's really cool, though, is when people adopt a whole food plant-based diet and how quickly the body wants to get back to a homeostasis of natural order where the CEO is back in charge, right? <laughs> that is really important piece that I think so many people don't understand that they actually can do. And they're shocked when you want to even bring it up. And they're like, what, you're not going to prescribe another medication or this? I'm like, no, we're going to prescribe well, what I like to call lifestyle interventions, lifestyle medicine, um, it's, a, it's a, just a different way. We use medicine, of course, when we need to, but yeah, no, food is the absolute, the number one cause, diabetes, heart disease, high cholesterol, heart disease, the number one killer yeah. of Americans, men and women. But even women, I think it's like 300,000 women will die this year from heart disease, but we're, we're more focused on other things like breast cancer awareness, which is very important. But we, but more women die of heart disease, but we neglect to discuss it as much as we should and embrace the things that we can do to prevent it and change the path. Um, the suffering is just tremendous what people go through. But anyway, I could talk about that for hours, but yes, food is our number one reason. Right. Hence why we're talking about food addiction, because how do we break out of that? We'll get to the how to. So we kind of set the stage. So we we set up our, ourselves to be in this habit formation and then our environment feeds into it. Right. So they've hijacked our brain. Yeah, exactly. So the biological aspect, our food environment, then our current like stress system that we have right now. And this is why, and I think, I mean, I think honestly, this is probably why it's becoming more and more researched in terms of food addiction um, is because you just see it's so relevant. And, and again, like you were saying, um, when we see being the number one cause of preventable death with these chronic diseases and how it's the norm, I mean, it's the norm to be on multiple medications. That's a pretty big shift you have to make. Yeah. Um, you, you know, what's even more interesting is that if you say that to someone, which I always, I never thought of that as a provocative statement, but there will be people who get upset. They're like, oh, what are you saying? It's my fault that I have this diabetes or that I should be judged or, you know, shamed or feel guilty about that. I was like, no, I'm just saying that we've shifted from the really more important things that will keep you healthy. I'm not saying that any blame, blame anywhere with chronic disease. I'm just saying we shouldn't have accepted this as normal so that we can put the resources into it to halt the very likely pace that we're going. We're all going to be jumping off a cliff 
and nobody's yeah. doing anything to stop it. If anything, we're, you know, fueling the fire with policy and allowing our environment to continue to be like this. We're getting our children, we're bringing them into the fold of chronic disease at an earlier age. It's devastating to our society. And no, you shouldn't be offended when I say we have now embraced chronic disease as the norm. It is, it shouldn't be, it's just not right. So. And I think this is where it's so lovely when you're thinking about this for yourself or what we're talking to patients about that is this is not your fault. This isn't a morality issue. This is not you are a failure because there's so much guilt and shame, especially like, and I think we're doing a much better job of, um, exp in, this just happens for both sexes, but we do see women are proportionately more, um, subject to this is for so long, it was about being skinny, right? And that skinny equated to not eating a lot. And then you had all these very unhealthy diets that then led to overeating, binge eating, um, instead of it being, no, we want to be healthy and without chronic disease. This isn't mm -hmm. about weight. This isn't about what we look like. This is about feeling good in our body, living long, healthy years, um, without chronic disease. Um, and we are set up an environment that makes it very difficult unless you have knowledge around this and you've been given that. And even for myself, I think about myself in college, here are the items that I ate in college. There were about five cereal, <laughs> processed cereal, not even like, you know, I mean, most cereals all processed, but not even like checks. I wasn't on checks. I let's think, um, uh, like Lucky Charms and Cinnamon Toast Crunch. And I can't even remember them now because I've been eating them for so long. Um, I remember there were these pork salads. The, even thinking this just like makes my mind. Just what salad? Pork? They were pork, like sweet pork salads. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I haven't eaten meat over a decade now, but <laughs> um, and Ben and Jerry's ice cream. That was my diet. <laughs> But guess what? That was my diet. And I was very thin still. Um, so that doesn't, that doesn't equate to health. It's but you were sick too. To... And people should I'm go back and listen to our interview, but you were very, like you had issues, like you had a lot of health concerns. So, which is fascinating. That's yeah. True. Extremely, extremely sick to the point where I couldn't even like walk to college classes from inflammatory pain. So yes. Um, but you know, going along with, this is not morality. This isn't failure. This is right. We are going to inform you. We're going to give you the knowledge and show you all the different ways where you can come across this. And there are ways, look at me. <laughs> now I would never touch any of that food and I don't have chronic pain or be given all these prescriptions for opioids. You yourself, your family, um, it is very, very possible. Um, but we have to fix our brain. So you had mentioned children, and I think that it's such a um, such an important aspect of like what's happening in in kids now. Um, you'll hear pediatric um, endocrinologists say we're giving children um, medications for hypertension, and you know now type two diabetes in kids that didn't ever happen. And when we go back to the processes and what happens in our brain, we also know. Um, that if we continue to overeat highly palatable foods, um, our brains are like, wait, we got to slow things down. And they will actually 
um, downregulate our D2 receptors. So essentially what that means is that we will eat the same food that was really, really good initially, and it will stop getting as much reward. But remember, we're also have this pathway that's activated, like, no, that was good, keep eating it. No, that was good, keep eating it. We don't get the same pleasure from it than when we eat it. So we eat more, hoping that we'll get that. And it continues in that cycle. You regulate your D2, let's keep eating more. Um, and they've done this in rat studies where they've given rats really palatable food. So like bacon and, you know, um, cheesecake and pound cake and chocolate and sausage. And um, they'll downregulate their brains. Mm. Or another rat studies where rats will prefer high fructose corn syrup um, water to cocaine, mm. which is pretty powerful. It's 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 a yeah it's it's sad and a devastating situation that we're in so oh so that gets us to the point that we have a biological setup that was meant to be for survival that has now been hijacked by our environment by companies and stress and so everything's feeding into the system of addiction, right? And so that it really is not our fault. We're biologically set up for this. Our environment makes it difficult, but it's kind of, for me, it's like, once you know that you have the mm -hmm. knowledge, now, if you continue to engage in that behavior, I think that gets on you, right? So if you understand now, one, there is a situation and a problem and that there is a way out. Is it hard work? Yes, but you, if you choose, mm -hmm. You're walking into the to whatever is the consequences with the eyes wide open. Now, does it doesn't mean that you shouldn't get help or it makes it hard, but just like anything, we need to make different decisions if you want a different outcome. And so at the end of the day, we need to make different decisions about our food choices and just like anything else. And so, and I'm not coming that from a moral standpoint or judgment. It's just like this is just the facts of life in general. <laughs> life is hard. And sometimes you have to do unpleasant things to get a better outcome and unpleasant meaning figuring out how to overcome the addiction or food addiction. So, which gets me to the next point, maybe we'll close this podcast here and then we'll get to knowing, let's go diving into how do we even know if we have food addiction? Yeah, I know it's a great, great idea. Let's do it. All right. Well, thanks everyone for listening. Catch us next time. This is the next, uh, the second the second part of our series with Catherine Van Tassel, and we're going to talk about how do you even know if you have food addiction? This really gets to the, to the meat of it, literally. And I'm really excited about this because I have a lot of questions for you. So we'll see you guys at the next time.